It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Author and surgeon Atul Gawande has written about healthcare, science, and aging. Lately, he's been focused on love. He wants to spread the message that everyone has equal worth, from a convicted felon to a hospice nurse. It's especially hard to remember right now, he says. We're in a moment where we have a hard time even saying our neighbor has equal worth. At the root of it is shutting off our curiosity about people's lives. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from Spotlight Health. In his recent writing, Atul Gawande is exploring a major societal problem. He sees a gap between our aspiration for how we treat each other and the reality of it. Gawande, who wrote the book Being Mortal, describes how we can bridge the gap in this conversation with Lucy Kalanithi. She's a professor of medicine and the widow of the late Dr. Paul Kalanithi, who wrote When Breath Becomes Air. Here's Lucy Kalanithi. Good morning, everybody. Please help me welcome surgeon, researcher, writer, thinker, and moral leader, Dr. Atul Gawande. And please help me welcome Lucy Kalanithi, who is physician, Grieve, formerly grieving, still grieving wife uh, from a be, of a beautiful book by Paul Kalanithi, When Breath Becomes Air, and, uh, and also a deep thinker. Thanks. And, and to lift things up a bit, we're going to talk about death. <laughs> I feel so lucky to be sitting here with you. I think everybody in this tent feels the same way. I know you as someone who is kind when you don't have to be. You wrote a blurb for Paul's book well before it came out or was anywhere, so thank you for doing that. I think it would have meant the world. That was easy. It's an amazing, amazing, unputdownable book. Thank you. So I'd love to ask you first about some of the biggest themes in your writing. Um, You've always been grounded in compassion and humanity, but this year that actually seems amplified, including on your Twitter feed, which is a lot about injustice. And you recently gave a commencement address where you talked about how the hospital is one of the few places where you can see the whole range of society, which I think is one of the most exciting things about being a physician, too. And you said over and over in that talk that the foundational principle of medicine is that all lives are created equal. And then when you look back across your books, you wrote Complications in 2002. You were still a resident. You've written three books since then. Your essay, um, The Cost Conundrum, was required reading for Obama's Oval Office, Being Mortal's been on the New York Times bestseller list forever. And um, you have this great ability to hit the zeitgeist, tell us where we are, and then tell us how we can get better. And looking across your themes over the years, it seems like you started out writing about safety, and then you wrote about quality, and then value, and now you're sort of writing about love. And I'm curious, what is it about this particular cultural moment that is making you so interested in talking about compassion? You heard it on the stage just earlier. There seems to be a deep gap between, um, that that I've always been interested in, between um, our aspiration for how we treat each other, our aspiration about for what we believe, 
and the reality of it. And mining and de depicting the rea that gap has always been powerful to me. Um, the medical principle that we talk about goes back millennia, which is that all lives have equal worth. And to try to really explain what that means, in that commencement address I gave at UCLA, I talked about treating a prisoner who had come in and with a, with a female uh, chief resident, I was the medical student, and he more or less verbally assaulted her, uh, was menacing in ways that I don't really want to quote here, um, and it was not safe for her to participate, so she hands the clipboard to me and says, you take care of him, and he'd <laughs> swallowed a razor blade and had uh, slashed his wrists and uh, needed to figure out how to take mm -hmm. care of them. And it was one of those moments when you ask, what does it mean to say all lives have equal worth? How do you, and I was speaking to medical students, how can you be in a position that you will say this person still has equal worth? And we're in a moment where we have a hard time even saying our neighbor has equal worth. And that at the root of it is shutting off our curiosity about people's lives. And I think that um, what's beautiful about your and Paul's work, because it was your and Paul's work, um, in asking about mortality, a lot of what interests me comes out of medicine is the fact that we close our eyes to the ways in which we're all vulnerable. We are all finite. We are all... Um, uh, imperfect, and, uh, and we are, even across the Me Too movement, trying to grapple with how do you live with the worst of who we are and the best of who we are, and know that for every human being, we are not defined by either one of those things. We're not defined by the worst thing we do, and that's what we're trying to say about prison reform but we are also not the best thing we do. I, 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 I try to act like I'm the best thing I can. I get to write in, in my best voice and you know, be the person my mom wants me to be. But, <laughs> but, but you're kind of, you know, you're all of it. You're all of it. And, 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 uh, and so I think what is powerful and what I wanted to ask you about um, in this conversation is that you and Paul put yourself out there in the course of his grappling with his own mortality, the reality of what he thought he would aspire to be, what you thought you would aspire to be. And it was, like Ava said, it's in those very personal moments that it becomes really alive, right? Choices like, should we have a baby? Yeah. When he is, um, has a brain tumor that you know can't be cured. A, quest a, a decision that could be questioned by anybody and everybody. Including us, yeah. Including you. <laughs> it was, yeah. And so I want to ask, what were you, what do you think he was aiming to do and what were you aiming to do? Um, to me, it felt like we're mining much of the same thing. There's the, there's the fantasy world of how you think the world is and then there's the reality and there are moments, whether it's what's happening at the border, whether it's a moment of... Uh, incredible disempowerment because of uh, sexual harassment or because of getting a diagnosis that suddenly alienates you from 
even the people around you and finding you're isolated and not able to connect. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what led to that and how you see it connecting here. What led to figuring out what was important or having the baby? What, or yeah, what led, what, what, led to to the, what led to writing in that mm -hmm. moment and being so vulnerable, mm -hmm. his being so vulnerable, and then you're adding your own voice to that. Mm, sure. Um, so my late husband was a, a neurosurgery chief resident at Stanford when he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer um, and lived for 22 months after that diagnosis. Um, and... When he was diagnosed, actually, he wrote to his best friend who, um, uh, and said, you know, I'm a, I have some bad news to tell you. I found out I have terminal cancer. Uh, the good news is I've outlived two Brontes, Keats, and Stephen Crane. The bad news is I haven't written anything. And that, this is a young neurosurgeon who the, the real loss is that he hasn't written. He sort of had this distant dream of writing. Very fortuitously ended up writing an essay and then getting a book deal and, and finding that to be what he wanted to do. And he said, um, the book uh, Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek by Annie Dillard, sort of a close study of nature. And the, you know, when I said, what are you hoping to do with this writing and this book? And he said, you know, I want to do what Annie Dillard did for nature, but I want to do that about dying. And just talk about what it feels like and what I'm thinking about as I'm going through this. And some of that was a diary, like the act of being so close to what's happening, um, you know, and trying to seek how long do I have left and reading through these statistics. And he said, you know, looking for solace in statistics right now is like trying to quench a thirst with salty water. Like this is a big, mortality is not uh, scientific, it's visceral. Um, and... You know, I think it's funny because I think in medicine, so much of what you're asked to do over and over is rise to the occasion. So you deliver your first baby, you do your first surgery, the patient may not know it's your first time, you tell somebody they're dying, and I think you just keep rising to the occasion over and over. And this was a little like that. It was like, oh, turns out this is what we're going to have to do together and, um, you know, act in these circumstances now. And then... For me, um, after Paul's death, I sort of done this book tour on Paul's behalf and started out talking as a sort of vessel for Paul um, and then added in talking about grief and then added in talking about end-of-life care, physician burnout. Like, there's so many different... One of the other big deaths in Paul's book is a, is a dear friend who's a surgeon who um, jumps off a building and dies and... And so there's all these different things in healthcare and medicine that are so deep and soulful, that connect to our real lives. And I feel like getting to write and talk about those was a big surprise and has been so fulfilling and different um, from what we thought we would do. And then also helped us make sense of a very confusing, scary situation. I wanna put the context of when, when, when Breath Becomes Air came out, my book was Being Mortal, it came out about six months, seven months before that. And, and put a little bit of a pin in where we were in society at that moment. Because at that time, it was still the peak of the death panels claim. A highly politicized moment where to have any discussion about what happens at the end of life and to say that there should be a discussion between the patient and the clinician was seen as tantamount to violating your ethical principles as a physician. It was as if you were saying that... Um, people are uh, being asked to 
systematically let people go across the country as if it's a kind of genocide or something like that that we are attempting to do. And what I felt when I read your manuscript um, as my book was coming out was they were speaking from the same place. And that same place was, um, and, and I didn't understand when I was writing my book what was wrong, why I'm a cancer surgeon, and why I often felt my um, ability to handle situations where people had problems I was not going to fix uh, often came out badly. We would try all kinds of heroic stuff, and it would just seem like we only left suffering behind us. And what I learned from interviewing lots and lots of people um, and hearing their stories and seeing exactly what happens at that really sharp end of, of what happens, he was so observant about his experience in the same way, is that people have priorities in their lives besides just survival. They have priorities for their quality of life. And you start finding out that discussing death is really about discussing life in the face of mortality. And that we are all mortal and that it's really a book about living knowing that you have uh, uh, a finite time on the earth. And during that time, what are your priorities? What are you living for? And it became really acute in that moment for Paul, but um, when, when you ask, and it really, you really realize it's not just about what happens towards the end, it's throughout your life as you grapple with the reality of um, your own imperfection, your own vulnerabilities over time, your own illnesses and, and your own, uh, you know, our, I thought my goal as a clinician was health and independence, that, I'm, that our goal is to keep you healthy and independent. But then what's the goal when, you, when you're, you can't be perfectly healthy and you can't be independent? And you realize that the goals are whatever your priorities are for your quality of life as well as your quantity of life. And so there are certain questions we don't ask that he started asking. Um, what's the minimum quality of life you would find acceptable? What's the, what are you willing to sacrifice? What are you not willing to sacrifice in the course of care or in the course of your experiences? out in the world? And then how do we make sure we're aligning what we do in line with that? Now, we don't, we don't ask that question. I've been doing surveys now for three years with a coalition and find that only 25% of the time do people who are seriously ill or have a serious disability have a conversation with a clinician about what their goals are, what, what matters to them most besides just survival. Um, and they have a remarkably different experience, but it's only 25%. I wanted to ask you, because this quote has always stuck in my mind and I get to read it to you, and i getting to be here on stage. This is a quote from Paul in the book. And I wanted to ask you about that moment of thinking about what his priorities are and what really matter. He said, the tricky part of illness is that as you go through it, your values are constantly changing. You try to figure out what matters to you, and then you keep figuring it out. And then he goes further, he says, you may decide you want to spend your time working as a neurosurgeon, but two months later you feel differently. Two months after that you may want to learn to play saxophone or devote yourself to the church. Death may be a one-time event, but living with terminal illness is a process. What did you discover, because it was a journey, were his priorities, and what did you discover your priorities were? Um, yeah, so, that moment of diagnosis, um, 
was such an explosion because you realize how much of your identity is tied up in your future self and who you imagine you will be years down the line and choices you're making today are very much related to you in the future. That all disappeared. And it really was a process actually as treatments worked for a while and then failed and Paul's physical state changed. He worked for a neurosurgeon, worked as a neurosurgeon for a year and then couldn't and started writing and we had our child. And he actually has sort of had it in his mind as um, give me 10 years, I wanna be a neurosurgeon still. Give me one year, I wanna write a book. Give me a few months, I wanna spend time with my family only. And kept actually adjusting to that. It, was pretty, it became pretty clear, but it took a while. Um, and then my goals, you know, at that time, my goals were partly to help him avoid unnecessary suffering. And as a physician, I knew that it's very possible to suffer um, in ways that will not help you. And um, the big example was at the very tough decision at the end of Paul's life that he didn't want to go on a ventilator because his clear goal at that time was to be mentally lucid. And life without that was not what he wanted. Um, and then I think my goal was to learn how to understand suffering. And that was a couple ways. I mean, I started to feel like, I'm not sure there's a point to human suffering except for it connects you to all other human beings forever, now and forever. And I started to notice suffering and feel a connection to it elsewhere. And I thought about, you know, um, I think about this in raising a child now too. She's over there, she's four, and she's being very quiet and good. Um, she's with my dad. And I, th I used to think, you know, I want to raise a happy child. And now I think I want to raise a resilient child. And they're kind of different. And, um, you know, when Paul and I were deciding to have a baby at the time, um, we talked a lot about it. And I actually tried so hard to find Andrew Solomon yesterday because he was here. Because reading his book, Far From the Tree, um, made me understand why it was okay to have a baby and introduce that uncertainty and pain. I thought, I don't know if I can withstand like this sick husband and the baby. And I was like, you know what? Tough things happen and we love each other through them. And I think if we have capacity and support, it's a possible to do this. Um, and I think anybody who has a child is thinking, you know, can I give this child a good life? Um, you know, and, and is this important to me? And the, those circumstances were not different in this new world that we found ourselves in. Um, yeah, I think that's mostly it. And I think, can I quote you back to you? Okay. Okay. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh gosh, and and so your book, being mortal, the first half is about aging, the second half is about dying, and those are the two things that medicine cannot fix, like you just described and you talk about what it means to be a doctor for people whose problems you cannot fix. And there were some sentences from that book that I carried around like a little talisman. And my favorites um, were these, it's five sentences. As recently as 1945, most deaths occurred in the home. By the 1980s, just 17% did. We've allowed our fates to be controlled by medicine, technology, and strangers but not all of us have. That takes, however, at least two kinds of courage. The first is the courage to confront the reality of mortality, 
the courage to seek out the truth of what is to be feared and what is to be hoped when one is seriously ill. Such courage is difficult enough, but even more daunting is the second kind of courage, the courage to act on the truth we find. And I remember reading that and thinking, that is the task, like that is the thing that Paul and I want to do, which is figure out, go clear-eyed, like what is really happening to your body, and then how do we shape your medical care so that it's built around what actually matters, which is not any treatment at any cost. And I think being doctors, we had a clear understanding that that goes against American medical culture to do that. And you really have to ask questions and you, we talked this morning, you may have to bring up those conversations with your own doctor. And by the way, you talked about how only 25% of patients get a conversation like that. And you, in your serious illness conversation guide, are teaching experienced physicians and also, I think, medical students in all the Massachusetts medical schools how to do that. And thank you for doing that. It's, um, it's nothing short of a revolution, I think. Um, Um, and I'm curious to know from you, so as physicians, we sort of get a front row seat to the human condition, which is so beautiful, but in writing Being Mortal, you actually got, you went further than that. So you went into patients' homes, talked with bereaved families, um, learned from people what really was most important in their most difficult moments, including with your own family. And I'm curious how the act of writing being mortal affected your own thinking about your life and your choices or your mortality, too. Um, I think through stories and through writing. So it, it, many of, most of my writing is thinking out loud and, and getting, to, um, getting to, to work my way through problems. I, I don't find it's interesting to write about things where I'm just trying to explain something to people and I know the answers. It's much more interesting, like, why the hell are our costs so high? Or, um, or what is going wrong in this space? And I guess I'd say there were two things that really struck me. One, you brought up suffering, and then I'll talk about what my vision of suffering is for myself. Um, suffering, I, it, I came to realize, was um, no one asking you what matters to you, but telling you how they're going to treat you. It is what we're describing at the border. It is what we're describing when we're talking about lack of power to even guide your own career path. And it is what you're talking about in healthcare when we, I, I did interviews with people who were in nursing homes where I would just try to find out um, what mattered to them. And what was kind of heartbreaking and, and the reality of seeing all of this is that um, you, when you don't ask people what their priorities are, what we're doing to them ends up being out of alignment with what matters to them, and the result of that is suffering. And so I'd see it in the nursing homes when um, people would, for example, be not allowed to have a drink at the end of the day in the nursing home. When you would have, uh, you would be required to go to bed at a certain time and it's lights out. And you'd wake up at a given time and there'd be a pill line and the, you know, you have to get dressed in the, in the following way. You can't have your own furniture because it's not safe. Um, what does this sound like to you? Prison. Prison. <laughs> exactly. And the most heartbreaking thing in my interviews was over and over again, people would say, when can I go home? When can I go home? 
Because a place where you can't make these choices is not your home. And, and we've medicalized the aging process to the point that when you go into nursing homes, places you need 24-hour care, they look like hospitals. And you know, the revolution was, I describe one guy, Bill Thomas, calls himself a nursing home abolitionist. <laughs> and he uh, built a nursing home, built, built, built nursing homes for people who needed 24-hour care, but built it around a kitchen. Uh, you could have a pet, like, you know, pets are unsafe. Uh, but, but now you have something to care for and love. And because of that, the amount of antipsychotic medication and antidepressants went down, mortality, uh, uh, survival went up. And in those places, you had a kitchen, and you, in it was a refrigerator. And in the refrigerator, you could go in and you could take out whatever you want. You could take whatever you want? Like, what if a diabetic took a soda out of the refrigerator? This is, we're, we're legally liable if they, if they drink a soda and their blood sugar's high and they go to the emergency room. And creating the freedom to go in there and, and, and make a bad choice. <laughs> and then we can argue with you about it. I, I met a woman who had Alzheimer's disease and um, very advanced, and she was on a medically ordered pureed-only diet. And uh, so she could only eat liquid food. And, um, uh, and so she would be caught hoarding cookies <laughs> that she'd stolen from her neighbors. <laughs> and they'd confiscate her cookies. And then they'd write her up. And they'd call the kids at home, the adult kids, you know, she's stealing cookies again. And you just want to say, let her have the damn cookies. <laughs> she is telling you what her joy is. This is one of the last joys that she has, and we couldn't listen. And we see that across healthcare. And, that, and then you said, I, I do think this is very deep because I think we see it across society. As we get to live 80 plus years on average age, we're gonna spend significant chunks of it with chronic illnesses, with disabilities, and navigating life with incredible productivity and, and ability to contribute is navigating life with, with um, your abilities and losses changes, changing. And our goal has to be in what, how we live and care for people, that it's not just about survival, that it's about your getting to do what Paul did, which is navigate the pathway of, what is it that matters most to me? Are people caring enough to help me achieve those things? And then can we orient a system around doing that? And ironically, all of the evidence shows it's less suffering and it's equal or often lower cost with equal or better survival. So we're out of time. Uh, you have said, better is possible. It does not take genius. It takes diligence. It takes moral clarity. It takes ingenuity. And above all, it takes a willingness to try. Thank you for your willingness to try. Thank you for all of your yeah. Atul Gawande is a staff writer at The New Yorker. He's also the CEO of a healthcare partnership between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Lucy Kalanithi is a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford. She's the widow of Paul Kalanithi, who wrote the bestseller, When Breath Becomes Air. 
Their conversation was held June 24th at Spotlight Health. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Spotlight Health team is Peggy Clark, Ruth Katz, Katie Dresser, Tracy Anderson, Natalie Johnson, Deb Cunningham, and Sola Farquhar. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.